The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. Today, I'm speaking with Lorna Harries. She has a PhD in molecular genetics from University College London and set up the RNA-mediated mechanisms of disease group at the University of Exeter Medical School, where she's currently an associate professor in molecular genetics. She was part of a study published in 2018 called an engaged research study to assess the effect of real-world dietary intervention on urinary BPA levels in teenagers. Lorna, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. So this study was, as you said, an engaged research study. It was work that we did over two years with about 124 of our local um, 17 to 19-year-olds. Uh, we wanted to get the students involved in real research. And with our help, the students designed a BPA avoidance diet based on what we knew about where BPA was. And the students actually followed this diet for a week. Um, we then took samples before and after for urinary BPA levels. So the students were, in actual fact, their own controls because we were looking in change in levels based on, um, based on their following the diet. So they were, they were essentially trying to avoid BPA. That's correct, yes. What were your findings from the study? So firstly, we found that over 86% of our, of our students, we, we could find measurable levels of BPA, which is slightly worrying given uh, you know, it shows that it's a very ubiquitous compound in our environment. Um, and importantly, after the, the seven days, even though the students had tried really hard to follow the diet and to avoid BPA, and we know they'd followed the diet because they kept diet dietaries, they actually took it very seriously because they had been involved in, in designing the study, so they were very invested in it. Despite following the diet religiously for a week, we found absolutely no change in their BPA levels after they'd followed it. That's crazy. So it's basically like we can't avoid this stuff. At the moment, with current labeling guidelines and, and the ubiquitous nature of this compound, it's actually very difficult to avoid it in our environment. Mm -hmm. How is BPA found in, like, I would assume that the people in the study, if I was part of the study, I would choose things in glass containers instead of mm -hmm. plastic containers. But I would assume that there is BPA in glass food. Is that right? Uh, not, actually in, not actually in the glass itself. So you may find BPA in the little plastic disc in the lid. Ah. So yeah. the glass would have, you know, your bottle would have a lid and that may have an epoxy-lined layer in it, so it can come from there. But importantly, BPA is also very prevalently found in processed food. So it might not actually be the container in, in this case, which is the problem. It might be that what's contained in that, in that container might have been very highly processed. Right. And then I would assume that food would be stored in plastic containers or possibly even processed in plastic containers before put into jars. Absolutely. I mean, this shows you actually a big problem with the providence of our food. Quite often we don't know where it's come from and where, what's happened to it before we have it. Yeah, like the journey it's had before. And, you know, this was a bit startling to read because I've been spending so much extra money <laughs> on, <laughs> on things that are in glass. Like I will buy, you know, an $8 jar of mustard or something because it's in glass. And then I never really thought about 
you know, maybe it was made in a big bucket before. I mean, the glass is still a better option. You know, it's still a better option than a plastic container. And and you have to be, you know, take take these things with a little bit of sort of practicality, unless you're going to sort of grow your own mustard seed and mash it up yourself. You have to kind of delegate a little bit of responsibility for, for that elsewhere. But what we're hoping to do is to raise awareness of the role that processing and the use of sort of plastics, particularly in processing, can have on the BPA load of, 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 of your food. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that temperature will will release the BPA sooner. So, for example, if yeah, you pour it, it is true, right? It is true. So, so the nature of the food, the nature of the food will definitely have an impact. So things which are very fat rich, things which are very kind of greasy will dissolve the BPA easier. Certainly temperature. If you heat in BPA containing plastic, that will release more BPA into the food than it would if you just had it, you know, cold. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that tomatoes, because they're acidic, would probably yeah, get more BPAs out of, as well. And I know that a lot of canned tomatoes would be an issue. So we try to like jar our own tomatoes, which is a lot of work. It really is. It is, but you may, you may benefit from that. In fact, cans are probably the number one source of, of BPA in our food chain. Oh, wow. And, you know, I don't think BPA used to line cans. <laughs> I think I think they started using it because they were worried about rust and you know what would happen with the components of the metals in the can getting into the food. There's been reports of the sort of the role of aluminium in Alzheimer's and things like that. So I think it was a way to try and protect actually the food from the can. Oh, well, I suppose it was well-intentioned, which a lot of things are, right? Uh, Indeed, yeah. We have an issue here with coffee cups, those disposable coffee cups. And, you know, we're getting hot coffee in them or, you know, you're getting your kid a hot chocolate. And then I would assume that it would just be releasing the BPA faster because it's hot. So that's... Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to, to remember is not all plastic contains BPA. But the big problem is just by looking at that plastic, you can't tell whether or not it does or not. Oh, interesting. There are milk containers too here in Canada, like cartons. So they're a fiber. And then obviously they have to put something to waterproof it on the inside. And mm. I wrote to an organic company and they said, yes, it's it's PET, like PET. PET, not so much, actually. What, what you're oh, looking good. at is polycarbonate. Yeah. So generally the sort of plastic you get in milk bottles, that sort of plastic, high density PET, low density PET, that doesn't tend to have BPA in it. Uh, BPA is most commonly found in polycarbonates. In the UK, we have a, a sort of a classification for different types of plastic. In the UK, it's number seven, that, that, um, that's polycarbonate. Also, sometimes in sort of PVC type plastics, you can find it in that. So does that mean the, you the know, lining? You have to know. <laughs> yeah, and there's no, there's no regulation around it, right? Like there's no, there's no. no warning or anything. No, um, that's one of the things we're pushing for, actually. So is, is that true, though, that BPA is lining coffee cups? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be able to say definitively on that without actually knowing about the plastics that's in there. And again, like you say, just by looking at your coffee cup, you can't tell whether or not it has. You'd have to write to the manufacturers of, of that cup and ask them definitively what the plastic is. And quite often they may not even know themselves. That was one of the biggest problems that we found when you're trying really hard to avoid it. If you're not going to be spending six times as long in your food store scrutinizing labels, <laughs> actually, it's really hard to do. Yeah, and a lot of the labels don't have anything in terms of of packaging. And there are some other studies that have come out as well regarding BPA. So is there evidence in previous studies that BPA could be harmful to people? There's certainly evidence. You have to ask questions about the quality of that evidence. So the, the evidence tends to come in two types. It tends to be work that's been done in cells in, in the laboratory. Certainly those experiments do suggest that BPA could be a problem to human health. 
The issue is, is, of course, they're cells and not whole bodies. And also the doses that are used are quite commonly a lot higher than, than you might find in the body. Other studies are kind of population-level studies where you take a bunch of people, you look at the levels of BPA, and then you look at your outcomes. So do you get more cancers, for example, or issues with things like hormone signaling, things like that? Do you get that? But then obviously working with people is, is difficult because people are subject to an awful lot of variables. So, and those, those studies will only ever give you an association between what you're looking at and your outcome. But those studies do suggest quite strongly that there is evidence to say that BPA might be contributory to type 2 diabetes. It also might be contributory to coronary artery disease. And there's, there's data in the literature, uh, again, these are associations, so we can't say definitively that yes or no, it, yes, it does cause these things or no, it doesn't. But there's evidence to suggest that things like your sex hormone signaling as well might be affected. Of your what, sorry? Your sex hormone signaling, so your estrogen signaling. BPA looks a lot like estrogen, mm-hmm. so it can cause some of the same changes in the body that estrogen would cause. What are some changes that estrogen would typically cause? Okay, so that, that would very much, again, that would depend on how much you were giving. But certainly in, in our environment, there have been reports that BPA um, and estrogenic chemicals leaching from things like the contraceptive pill have been associated with um, sort of feminization of male fish. When you translate that to people, obviously, it's very, very difficult to say. Um, but estrogen signaling, the, the sort of what estrogen does in your body is very important. It has roles in a whole bunch of things from sort of immune function to you know, reproductive function to all sorts of different things. And one of the things that we indeed have found in our previous work on BPA is that BPA can cause changes in um, some of the genes that are regulated by estrogen. Do we know what kind of genes are? So, so the receptors for estrogen, there's, there's a number of receptors. One of them is a gene called uh, ER, ESR2. That codes for the estrogen receptor um, beta. That one, we found differences in how much that gene was switched on when you treated cells with BPA and also when you look at, how, when you look at BPA exposure in people. There's another gene which is uh, another receptor. So basically, it's like a docking site for estrogen on your cells. Um, that gene is called ESR, ESSRA. That gene, again, shows changes in people and in cells when you treat or are exposed to BPA. That gene is a little, bit, um, a little bit of a worry, actually, I think, because it's involved in a whole bunch of processes. It might be one of the reasons why BPA has been associated with things like cardiovascular disease, because that gene is important in that. That's really troubling. And I hope that we, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, you know, my, my cousin, he has a, a PhD in chemistry, and he was telling me, we kind of had babies at the same time, and he was saying, <laughs> yeah, you can get BPA-free plastic, but the chemical yeah. that they've replaced it with kind of does the same thing. Yeah, this is a really big problem, actually, that once you, once you highlight one issue with something like BPA, people then will you know, act on that, hopefully. So BPA has been um, it's banned in baby bottles, for example, in Europe now. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like you say, they replace it. They, it's, in there, it's in the plastic for a reason. It's in there because it makes plastic easy to work with. Um, and they replace it with other things. And those other things are very often not tested. So we don't know what they do. And I wish that we could test them before they are sold to people. It's crazy that we have this system that you can sort of have any business without testing. And I know there are a lot of testing for like, you know, food and makeup yeah. is trying to be more tested. And I stuff think people like don't think outside of the box enough, though. I think people think it's going in the packaging. Therefore, it's not a problem. You know, you're not you're not putting it directly in the food as they see it, although you are. So I think, you know, if you take it very simplistically, if you design a, a plastic to be used as, as packaging, there's no reason for them to kind of think that that packaging might be a risk to our food chain. But, you know, if you think about it a bit deeper, of course it is. 
I think the issue with BPA also is, is BPA is a very old chemical. So it is actually it was actually made way, way back, I think, in the 40s. Um, and it was one of the precursors of the contraceptive pill, actually. And then it doesn't actually work very well as, as uh, part of the contraceptive pill. So it was kind of put on the shelf, so to speak. And then years later, people found that it's, it's useful in making plastics flexible and malleable and, and moldable. Because it had been, firstly, because it wasn't then intended for medical purposes. And secondly, because it had been around for ages, it kind of just got put into these things without any testing. Um, and I think now we're only just beginning to realise the consequences of that or the potential consequences of that. I can't imagine a scientist saying, I'm going to make this plastic packaging better and <laughs> I'm going to go look on this shelf of failed contraception and take something and put it yeah. into a container. It, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be something that would be immediately apparent to me to do, certainly, but somebody somewhere did it. <laughs> That's, I, I, I just find that so funny and strange, but, yeah. but also sad on the other, the other side of it, because if it was used to affect hormones, you know, in the 40s, and uh, then obviously we know that it is doing something. You might predict it would then, might you? So. Oh my goodness. Do you know if freezing gets BPAs out faster or is it well, just I'm not heat? sure actually. I know heat certainly does. This is just my opinion. But my gut feeling is that freezing actually tends to stabilize things. It tends to make things less likely to move. But if you're freezing stuff in a plastic container, you put that in the freezer, you then take it out of the freezer and then you stick it in the microwave or the oven, that then may be an issue. Because mm -hmm. it's an extreme temperature fluctuation. Definitely. So I know certainly since 2010, Tupperware, for example, Tupperware doesn't have BPA, but there are other plastics that may. And certainly the trays that your microwave ready meals come in, again, the provenance of that, of that plastic may not be very clear. And, and we don't know if that contains BPA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've thought about that too, about all those microwaved dishes that I ate in mm. university. <laughs> And especially <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the, the plastic film on top of it, because they say just put little kind of cuts in it and leave it on. And then I think, oh, I wonder if that mm -hmm. had it in it too. <laughs> so. Yeah, cellophane, not so much, actually. Cellophane is less of a worry. People are a lot more aware of it, but this plastic crops up everywhere. Yeah, it's absolutely everywhere. We have a big problem with it here in Canada. It's just we piling really up. We really do. I mean, it's, it's a big problem for a number of reasons, you know, sort of ecological and um biomedical you know as much as anything I think it's something we need to deal with on all levels absolutely and especially with the environment because China just uh, announced that they aren't going to accept any more contaminated plastic and I interviewed someone locally from where I am in Canada and they said that we're not affected because our recycling goes local but I watched a documentary I think it was on the BBC and the UK is quite affected I believe oh we're, we're all affected and just because something isn't affected locally you know, we live in a global world. Absolutely. And it's it's sad what's happening in the Caribbean as well, because you get beaches that are lined with all these yeah. plastic items. And yeah, it's crazy. The other thing we need to think about, of course, is, you know, we're talking about big bits of plastic. Obviously, plastic will break down in terms of you can get things like my, what we call microplastics, which are when that bit of plastic has kind of broken up into lots and lots of little bits. Now, those may well be contaminated with, with BPA or indeed other substances. And they're in our environment. They're in the oceans. They're, you know, they're all over. So they may be a source of BPA coming out into our environment. Absolutely. And Jay Brandis from the University of Georgia, he did a study and found every single shrimp or piece of marine life that he took in and studied under a microscope had at least one piece of microfiber yeah. in it that was coming from that clothing. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, anything that there's, it doesn't surprise me. There's at least one trillion 
pieces of uh, microfibers in the Georgia coastal waters. And he sees it's almost like blooms around cities. So if you get a really big city, everybody's washing their clothes that are now all synthetic and then it's going out into the ocean. So I would imagine that, yeah, over and over across the pond, uh, you would see concentrations of that too. And then, you know, it gets into our food chain and then we're eating that again. Exactly. The way we've tried to think about this is, you know, as I say, there are evidence to suggest that it's harmful to health, certainly. Obviously, we're scientists, so we like to be robust about things and we wouldn't want to be making definitive claims based on, you know, you can never say something definitely does or or definitely doesn't. But my point is that if there's any question mark, actually, we shouldn't have to be exposed to it. If there's any question mark over safety or effects on our environment, actually, it should we should have a choice. Absolutely. And health and in the environment, I think, is more important than a few people making money, because usually in these situations, there's, you know, a few people who get super rich off of, you know, selling products, and then everyone else just has these bad effects. I want to get back to the study a little bit, though, because Mm, I found it pretty interesting. And I'm not a scientist, so you might have to explain it like I'm five. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) so I do remember, though, from from university bio about half-lives. And so BPA has a half-life of six hours, right? Yeah, very short half-life, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that you would find BPA present for 12 hours. Is that how that works? So basically what that means after six hours, you'd have half the amount of BPA that you started with. Does that mean that the BPA is is gone from our bodies in 12 hours? Mm-hmm. So after a period of time, you would be able to, you'd clear it. it. It doesn't hang around in your body. It doesn't accumulate. In fact, within about three days, you could wash that out. So that's why we use seven days in our study, because in seven days, you certainly should. If you, if you stop taking in BPA after seven days, that BPA should completely be washed out. The problem that we found is although the half-life is very short and you can get rid of it quite quickly and quite easily, it is so prevalent and so ubiquitous that you are actually constantly being exposed to it. So therefore, you would have a, a pretty continuous level. So what are some things that are causing this exposure? So if I was a teenager in the UK, I would think that um, like my water pipes would be plastic, like PVC pipes. I yeah, would, that's possible. I would think that I would try to not eat out of plastic. But again, what we talked about with the glass uh, yeah. jars. The, 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 prime, the, the main source of BPA is, is foodborne. Somebody did actually write to me about the pipes. And I'm not sure whether that piping would contain BPA or not. But the, the main sources are things like sort of plastic packaging, cans, as we said, those sorts of things. Dental sealants actually contain a, a lot of BPA. Thermal paper, the paper that your receipts when you get when you buy something, the receipt you get is coded in BPA. So if you go to your sandwich shop, you buy a sandwich, you get your receipt, you don't wash your hands. Before you eat your sandwich, you'll be getting a, a dose of BPA. So it's actually pretty, pretty hard to avoid. So it's those, possible to avoid it, but it's difficult. Those receipts, would it be a measurable amount, even just from touching that receipt for a few seconds? I wouldn't know exactly how much you get off, but certainly it has been identified as a potential source of BPA mm-hmm. in our food chain. I had heard that. And then I wonder about all of the people who work cashier jobs and they're touching them <laughs> yeah, all day, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm sure someone somewhere has done that study. I don't know the results of it off the top of my head, but yes. And another major source for teenagers in particular is uh, junk food. Fast food mm-hmm. is a particularly rich source of BPA. Not only do you have the sort of BPA that's coming in from the packaging, but the food itself is highly processed. So a combination of BPA-containing packaging and processed food, you're kind of you know, ready, quick fast food hamburgers, that sort of thing. They're a particularly rich source of BPA. And of course, teenagers tend to eat more of that sort of thing than adults do, generally speaking. Yeah, I definitely did. <laughs> um, Tell me too. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a reason that you picked teenagers over adults? 
Yeah, sure. So, so there were two reasons, firstly. So scientifically speaking, teenagers represent one of the, the age demographics that have the highest exposure. So we wanted to pick an age group that, that would actually have, you know, a reasonable levels of exposure that we might expect so that we will be able to see easily if we could make a difference. And secondly, that one of the other major aims of this research was to get these, these teenagers doing proper research. Um, so, you know, I do a lot of outreach activities with our local schools and they come in and they have a wonderful time in the labs for the day, but it doesn't actually bear much resemblance to what I do as a scientist. And I wanted to give the, the students a real experience of proper research, proper science. So obviously they were a really good age group to pick for that reason. That's awesome. Good for you for doing outreach work because we need more of that and more science in the world. It's hugely important. That's the next generation of scientists right there. I know. And it's the people who are going to care as well. Like what I see, I record at a college and I just, I love being surrounded by young, vibrant people because I think they get it a little bit more about the environment. And and they were incredible, actually. Our students were incredible to work with. They were all authors on that study that's published. We have another paper that's um, going to be out pretty soon. They're all authors on that. There'll be a third follow-up paper that they'll be authors on. So they will have, you know, scientific publications under their belt, which will be really useful to them for their careers. But it's also opened a few eyes, I think, um, and made them realize that science actually is a really interesting and fun career. Can you give us any information about the next studies that you're doing? Not really, no, not <laughs> published. <laughs> yeah, because you need to get them uh, sort of vetted before you can indeed, publish. And... Indeed, it has to be peer-reviewed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really good. If you see peer-reviewed journals or, or entries or whatnot, I find that they're a good source. So if you're looking for information and you're not sure where to find it or what information to believe, if you see that it's peer-reviewed, it's It just gives you a, a level start. of confidence that somebody else, unconnected with a research who knows what they're talking about, has had a look at it. Absolutely. And it's so important these days because of all the fake news that we're getting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not fallible. It's not infallible peer review. You know, it's, it's all down to opinion at the end of the day. But it's, it's the best system that, that we can come up with really at the moment, I think. Absolutely. Did you hear from any of the teenagers that they had trouble even finding food that wasn't in plastic? <laughs> oh, yes. We certainly did. So so in addition to the kind of quantitative arm, the measurement of the BPA levels and things, we did what we would call a qualitative analysis, which was um, a questionnaire based on a free text base, where we gave them the opportunity to tell us about our, their experiences of following the diet. And then we did a thematic analysis to see things which cropped up in multiple, multiple te- reports. And they found it incredibly difficult to find information about whether their food had BPA in it or not. Labeling is terrible. As you said before, you know, you can't tell by just looking at the package or reading the packaging, whether that, that particular packaging has BPA in it. And these students tried really hard. So a lot of them were even doing things like making their own bread to make sure that, you know, to try and minimize as much as possible exposure. But yeah, it comes down to packaging. It took them a long time, actually, when they were doing their shopping to even, you know, begin to have some confidence that what they were buying didn't contain BPA. And even then, our results show that even when you do that, you can't avoid it. It's so difficult to go out for lunch quickly, like if you don't bring one and find plastic, uh, plastic-free yeah, food. Indeed. I don't know if it's the and same another in the thing UK. That, that this, oh, absolutely. And another thing the students said, actually, was it was very restrictive for them in that, you know, eating at other people's houses. If you're invited to dinner at someone else's house, you don't really want to start quizzing your host on <laughs> how did you make this. And things like takeaways, you know, we all like a takeaway from takeout from time to time. And again, you don't know the provenance of that. 
they found it very restrictive. And we actually asked them straight up, you know, how many of you would find this diet really difficult to maintain long term? If you had been able to make a difference in the levels of BPA, would you have been able to do this for the rest of your life? And the answer to that, again, was a resounding no. So we actually have a change petition that the students have put together on the basis of this. So do look out for that and do sign it. So one of the things we're pushing for is for better labelling, actually, on our food packaging so that we can make that choice. I think if, if the manufacturers found that it was mandatory for them to state that it's possible that this packaging or this food stuff might have BPA in it, we would get a choice about buying it. Then we wouldn't buy it and they wouldn't find it lucrative to make it. So, you know, it would get rid of it that way. So that's one of the things that we're looking to do. And as I say, we have a change petition out. So we, we have, you know, a forum for making some change. Is we're there a website to. where we can find that? It's on Facebook. Okay, cool. If you look up BPA, put that into your search box on Facebook. I'm pretty sure our petition will come up. Awesome. I'll definitely look for that. And the people who are involved in the studies tried to make their own bread. That's one of my biggest struggles. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just really not good at making bread, but I do it no, all the me time. Neither. For a scientist, actually, I'm surprisingly <laughs> bad at all that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. But that's something that we definitely do. And bread is a problem because I don't know how to store it not in plastic. Like I've tried different things like mm -hmm. pillowcases and, and linen and stuff, and it just seems to get stale. And I know people don't even put it in bags sometimes. There's certain recipes you can use with like a yeast, like a sourdough yeast that doesn't yeah. really have to be put in plastic, but no, I don't know. That's right. I'm still I mean, on what that we, what we have journey. Done is we, we've made kind of a set of guidelines, which is basically what the students followed based on what's known about where BPA is. And, and the best advice actually is eat fresh, mm -hmm. buy your fruit and vegetables unpackaged. There's no need at all for your fruit and vegetables to be packaged in plastic. Processed food, avoid that as much as you can. Obviously, it's not practical all the time to avoid it, but if you can avoid it, that's the best way. So buy all your fruit and veg and everything fresh. Avoid cans. Not all cans have BPA in, again, but you can't tell by looking at the can whether or not it has BPA in. So uh, I think Heinz don't, but I, I, I've heard that they don't. But again, by a particular manufacturer, you don't know whether or not it does. So avoid cans as much as you can. And, and try and eat your food in as natural a state as you can, you know, as, as, as natural, as near to its natural state as you can. That's the, about the best you can do. Mm -hmm. You know what, after speaking with you, I feel like I should maybe retract a few comments about a coffee chain in Canada, our biggest coffee chain, because I actually don't know then in that case, if there's BPA no. lining on you the cup. You can't tell. Yeah. You can't tell just by looking. Yeah. And the worrying thing is quite often the people, you know, the people who make your coffee cups, they may not know either. That's crazy. So we need labeling. We need to know. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that you're doing this study because I think we need so much more and I don't think there's enough studies out there that are, are doing yeah. this. There was a previous study that did actually do something a little bit similar where they, they looked to see whether or not you could make a change in your BPA levels by moderating your diet. And they did. The difference was, though, that, that was a very, ours was the biggest study pretty much anywhere ever yet. And we, as I said, we didn't find that you could do it. The study that did find a difference, that was in a, a, a bunch of families and a very small, I think it was 20 people in total. And the only way they could actually make a difference is by giving those people absolutely everything that they had to eat and to drink over the space of their, their trial. Now, what we were trying to do is a real world thing. You know, how could you 
could we find out a set of, of instructions that you could follow easily day to day to reduce your BPA in the real world? And I think that's key. That's really important. You can make these changes in a laboratory setting or in a controlled setting, but actually in the real world, can you do it? And the answer at the moment, unfortunately, is no. Yeah, and I would I would totally agree with that because it's just everywhere. And they just came out with a study saying that 93% of plastic bottled water contains microplastics as well. Yes, I'm sure it does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's everywhere and uh, it's having some bad effects. So hopefully we get some more labeling. I think that that's a really good suggestion. And can I just ask you, am I saying BPA right when I say bisphenol A? Uh, Bisphenol, bisphenol A. Bisphenol A. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Bisphenol A. Got it. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, this is just wonderful. And I I wish you the best of luck in continuing your studies. And again, I thank you uh, for all your work, because this is so important. And I think you found some really great things. And I'm I've been so happy to talk to you. So thank you so much for for taking time. It's been my absolute pleasure. This week on my countdown to zero waste, my household achieved its first full week of producing Zero waste. It was so awesome. I actually couldn't have done it though without my TerraCycle zero waste box because I was able to put a plastic bottle cap and bottle ring in it that would have fallen through to the landfill pile at my local recycling facility. So even if I'd put it in the blue bin, it would have went to landfill. Um, But the zero waste box from TerraCycle accepts that. I also had two plastic parts of paper envelopes. So you know how they have a clear window? Those things are bad. I really wish the government would stop using them. And there was one broccoli elastic and then two twist ties that were around kale and carrots. And all of that went into the zero waste box. I also dried my clothes on a rack this week, so I didn't even produce any laundry lint. Please subscribe to our podcast on whichever app or device you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to leave us a review, it helps me get more busy and important people on the show for your listening enjoyment, and it will help us get closer on our countdown to zero waste. If you like our show, you can follow me on Instagram. It's zero waste countdown. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, you can email me laura at zero waste countdown dot com. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.